This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today we have another featured panel from Fast Company's Innovation Festival this past fall in New York City. The panel is called Seizing Last Chance to Slow Climate Change, and it features Tiger Tayagarajan, the CEO of GenPact, Andrew Daly, co-founder of Climate Vault, documentary photographer Greg Kahn, Margaret Klein-Salomon, executive director, Climate Emergency Fund, and Kimberly Evans, head of corporate sustainability, inclusion, and impact at Northern Trust. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, We have a really exciting panel today. It's Climate Week. Uh, Climate is something that we care about a lot at Fast Company. It's something that all these folks care about, too, and they're all approaching it in different and interesting ways. Um, And it's a really urgent problem. And um, it's one of those problems that's been around forever. Um, What was the thing that you said about what's the difference between salad and garbage? Timing. Timing, right. So it's, it's it's maybe the time is right to finally come up with long-term solutions to the climate climate challenge. as we're getting into our panel, uh, the folks here were, are introduced, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the work that they're doing, and they can speak about it themselves, of course. Um, but we want to start by um, illustrating the human stakes of the climate challenge. And so we have Greg Kahn, who's in the center of the panel, uh, who's a documentary photographer and who's been doing a really interesting project over many years documenting uh, the, the ravages of climate change in a really specific place. And Greg, do you want to talk about your work? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so. I'm a documentary photographer that lives outside of Washington, D.C., and in 2012, I came across a document that talked about how the eastern shore of Maryland was facing sea level rise at twice the global average. Now, this was happening as a result of sea level rise and land subsidence, and those two things put together were creating a really big issue on the eastern shore. And part of me looked at this and said, I hadn't seen anything else like this. I hadn't seen any reporting on it. I hadn't seen a whole bunch of stories written about it. And here we are just, you know, a couple hours from the seat of power in our country where laws are being made and nothing was being done. So I took it upon myself to go out there and start engaging with the community and documenting what was going on. And what I found was that, you know, this is a a really historic community that has been on the water and, you know, generations of farming, generations of watermen, and they were watching it slowly erode and slowly wash away. Everything from nuisance flooding that has uh, gone up 900% since the 60s. They sometimes let kids out of school early because they know there's gonna be a high tide that's gonna flood the roads. And what happens is it's, you know, we're talking about three millimeters of water every year. And that seems like nothing, but three millimeters of water upon three millimeters of water, and suddenly your car can't go over because it'll rust out the bottom. Suddenly the roads are flooded and you don't have access to the, the things that you need. And so this kept building and building. And so a lot of my work focuses on not the intangible you know, glacier that's far away that we hear is, is, is melting, but what's happening right here, right now in our country. And also not the idea that it's the, the swift impact of a storm where you rebuild afterwards, but when sea level rise happens and it swallows up part of a community, it stays underwater. So I've had people show and point out into the Chesapeake Bay saying, I used to play baseball out here when I was young, and now it's open water. 
So that's kind of where I'm looking at this story from, really focusing on the nuance and really connecting those numbers and that science to the people who are mostly affected by it. The detail you tell about the school buses having to like, you know, get the kids out of school early is, is really wild to me and such a such an amazing, you know, story. Um, you also were talking about homeowners and, and how it's becoming more and more difficult to maintain your home or to sell your home. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's so it, there are areas on the eastern shore where you're going to see lots of for sale signs and no takers because what happens is the property value is plummeting because the industry knows that it's not gonna be a place that's salvageable for much longer. Some people say 30 years, some people say 50 years, some say 100 years, but all of them agree that it's going to happen. So flood insurance is skyrocketing, property values are plummeting, so a lot of times what happens is people will pass away, you know, give their home to their children and their children never come visit it, never do anything with it and just let it be overtaken by nature. So then you see these homes start kind of falling apart. There's even islands, Holland Island, the last house fell into the bay back in 2010. So these areas are completely changing. And, you know, there's, there's even an area in Hoopersville where they lose about two acres a month on average of land. And so it's a, it's a quickly moving problem, but it doesn't look like a hurricane. It doesn't look like a big fire. It doesn't look like any of the things that we're used to seeing, which are all important. But for me, I wanted to bring it down to that level too, because that's an area that I feel like we don't tend to look at or feel that there's a, an emergency with. And, and didn't you say that um, in some places people are fishing where they used to farm? Yeah, I, I've had people tell me now that, that where they used to farm, they now take a boat out and fish. So there, there's lots of this happening. There are grave sites that are actually literally graves that are washing out into the Chesapeake Bay. There's, um, you know, I talked to one of the realtors because I saw this whole line of for sale signs outside of these homes and the realtor played it down and said, no, 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 it's just normal changeover. And I'm like, did you, I mean, you have an entire strip all with your name on it of every home trying to be sold and months and months and months, nothing's selling. So there's invested interest in this area, but there's also the caveat that if you reveal that it's sea level rise or if you admit to sea level rise, then it's kind of saying that you're doomed, right? Because sea level rise can't be stopped to a certain degree. And if you're a politician or trying to sell homes, saying that it's sea level rise doesn't give you the access to the federal funding. You know, people want to look the other way and say, okay, well, now we just need to relocate people. But if you say it's erosion, if you say it's something that we put up a seawall, now you can apply for some funding. Now you can try and keep staving it off, build, build walls, you know, do other things to mitigate what's happening. So this is, you know, climate change, as we all know, is this huge global problem and also is a huge local problem. Um, and, and how do we solve this and how do we address it? It's been so hard to get sort of political will and corporate will around this. Um, you know, Tiger, I know Gempac, your company, which is a $8 billion company uh, uh, in terms of market cap, um, a technology company, you have serious sustainability goals. It might not be obvious to an outside observer what that has to do with your business. Um, you know, these focus on climate, but other things as well. How did you come to be interested in, and how did you come to be passionate about climate change and, and what got you interested in this work? So Mike, thanks. Thanks for having me in this discussion. Um, you know, we are 120,000 people spread across the globe. Our average median population age is 29, 30. Um, and if you talk to them, it is a deep concern that they have. So let's start with that stakeholder group. We are a business where talent is the most important thing that we have. Um, if you look at our clients, global thousand companies, every one of them 
independent of which industry they serve, are thinking about what, what do I need to do, what can I do to actually participate in carbon footprint reduction. Let's just take that aspect of climate change. Um, so if you take two of the four stakeholder groups and then you talk about the community that we live in, and I think your, you know, just your photographs are so striking in what that does to a community, and then of course investors. So as we looked at our business, we said strategically, um, it's important for us to make sure that we really excite our talent, we do the right things for the community, we long-term find a path to create shareholder value uh, in a highly sustainable 50, 100-year fashion. And of course, we need to serve our clients, all of whom are thinking this through. And our business is about data and technology. So we believe that. And then when we step back and said, so what's our purpose? So our purpose as a company is the relentless pursuit of a world that works better for people. So you think about our purpose, you think about our stakeholders. I think it, it, it is obvious, it was obvious to us that our strategic imperative, one of the pillars of our strategic imperative has to be how do we participate in helping our clients with data and technology to make it easier, better, more transparent for them to reduce their own carbon footprint, improve sustainability in the food products and in the supply chain, improve their supply chain and all kinds of things like that. So, and what we are finding is the more we do that, the more it excites our talent, the more it's easy for us to attract talent, oh my God, that's so important these days, and retain them. So it almost becomes a no-brainer. Sure. And I know that one of the ways that you've been tackling climate change and, and bringing your sustainability uh, work to life is through a partnership with Climate Vault. And full disclosure for everybody in the audience, uh, Climate Vault is uh, a 2022 World Changing Ideas Award winner from Fast Company. And we actually participated in, in bringing you guys together, which we were happy to do. Um, so Andrew, Climate Vault is, is uh, something that you co-founded um, several years ago. Uh, it's an idea to sort of reshape the way we think about carbon removal and carbon reduction. It's sort of a new business model. Can you talk about that? And also I know there's like sort of a glossary of terms that, that we all need to become more familiar with to understand the work that you're doing. So, so take us to school. Yeah, so uh, we started Climate Vault two years ago, uh, not quite two years ago, uh, with one of my co-founders who's Michael Greenstone, who's the Milton Friedman Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. So what's Chicago and University of Chicago all about? It's ideas into action. And he had this idea of using the compliance markets, so using the cap and trade markets to address climate change and bringing that and helping individuals and organizations uh, get to net zero. So it sounds really simple, but behind that is really the idea that this is a climate scale problem and we need to bring climate scale solutions and ideas to solve this problem. And so if you think about what's the one idea that humanity has come up with in the last thousand years that's scalable, transparent, cost efficient, and verifiable, it's the market. So we said, how can we take the market mechanism to address this problem? So in really simple terms, we take an organization like Genpact or Northern Trust and say, tell us what your, what your carbon footprint is, and we'll go into the cap and trade markets in the Northeast, California, and buy an equivalent number of tons of CO2 and pull those out of the market and basically vault them. So they're permanently removed from play in that market. 
So that's a really simple thing, and an organization or an individual can then say, I know exactly how many tons of CO2 have been vaulted, it's, it's completely verifiable, and it's the most cost-efficient way to do it. So as opposed to going through a lot of other mechanisms where you don't know what's the real cost per ton of CO2, did this really happen, is it going to happen over the next five or ten years, this way it's completely verifiable and transparent. And then there's a second piece to our story, which is we take those tons of CO2 that are in the vault, and then we go to carbon removal uh, and sequestration companies and say, prove to us, prove to our panel of experts that you can actually remove a ton of CO2, and we'll pay you for that service. So again, using a market mechanism to say, we're going to bring demand, all these tons of CO2, and pay people to actually remove them or sequester them and, and, and take them out of the atmosphere. So it's a simple idea using the market and, and the attributes that come with it in terms of transparency, verifiability, cost efficiency, and then doing it at scale. Um, and we're super happy to have been selected as a, an award winner. We appreciate that and the partnership with GenPact and Northern Trust. And, and you two are working together on an API, do I have that right? Yes. And so you're building an API, and what would that do? Yeah, so this is really simple, which is, again, simple idea. In every transaction online, why shouldn't you have the ability to offset that transaction? Anytime I go to buy a shirt, pair of sneakers, I should be able to say, and here for an extra amount of money, I want to offset that transaction. So very simple. And then if you think about it in the B2B context, how do we enable that so that organizations can offset the remissions in doing business with each other? And Kimberly, Northern Trust plays a role in this too. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. So I'm Executive Vice President, Head of Corporate Sustainability, Inclusion, and Social Impact at Northern Trust. And we've been on our sustainability journey for the past um, you know, 12, 13 years or so and measuring our emissions from our business operations and knowing that we have to do more um, to help support, you know, moving to the science-based target of, you know, um, 1.5 degree uh, Celsius. And so we've been on our journey in terms of studying our emissions, reducing our emissions, but we also know that, um, you know, we, we've got to do more than just our fair share. Um, because as a financial services organization, we also have a pretty broad, a pretty big um, total value chain. And so we have to look at um, products and services or goods and services that we purchase from others. So it wasn't just about us. It became about like, how are we looking at the whole community or the whole ecosystem that we are um, living in and then also contributing to. And in this journey, um, we met um, Andrew and Michael um, and Chris, who's in the audience, um, just around uh, their innovative idea. And also, it's operating from the compliance markets. And so, verifiable way to prove that we are removing um, CO2 from the atmosphere. And so, they're our first partner, our first choice to be able to say this is a great partnership to not only have us continue to do the things around our buildings and uh, operations to reduce emissions, but to go beyond that and say, let's offset in a way that is 
verifiable. Um, and, and one of the other things that we wanted to do too was, um, you know, Andrew was talking about, you know, B2B and, you know, uh, working with other, you know, when we think about our employees, Tiger talked about, you know, employees are interested in this work and you've got to do whatever you can um, as a company to keep your employees excited about working with you. So one of the things we want to do is not just think about how do we offset our business operations or think about our whole value chain with respect to our work with Climate Vault, but our employees provide a platform for our employees to be able to, um, you know, have offsets as well. So um, it's it's the start of what we think is going to be an amazing partnership, long-term partnership, and helping, um, you know, advance uh, the world from the perspective of uh, climate change. And that's really what our purpose and mission is. Um, our mission is more connected to we want to be our clients' most trusted financial partners, and our purpose is to create financial futures that advance the world. Well, if we're thinking about advancing the world, um, everything we do around people, the planet, profit, you know, really starts to come together. So we're excited to have this partnership. Yeah, but I want to say this, like being the head of sustainability at, a, at any company right now is not for the faint of heart. Um, so congratulations. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, uh, that's right. Um, and it's, uh, but it's a difficult. And yeah, one, one maybe um, uh, sort of storm cloud during uh, climate week is that other financial institutions, I think JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, you know, reportedly have, have, have thought about pulling back on some of their climate initiatives. And I'm curious, um, you know, in sustainability right now, as you, as you work with you know, people within your organization and peers at other organizations, um, you can imagine a world where there was a lot of um, enthusiasm for sustainability uh, when the you know, when we were at the market was at an all time high. You know, we're maybe in a different place today, and and companies are a little bit more wary um, and thinking about the expenses that they have. Talk about that. Mike, I'm, I'm so glad you bring that up because I did ask for this. I love the work. And so now I'm in a, <laughs> in a role where I live it every day um, in a big way. I would say Northern Trust has always been very measured about the steps that we take for everything, right? So we're a financial services organization. We're based in, you know, we're grounded in data, grounded in facts and um, analytics analytics around what we do. So in some regards, people would look at what Northern Trust has done and said, maybe we were too slow, right? Because we weren't the first out of the pack to claim we were going to be net zero carbon by 2050. We weren't the first out of the pack to even choose a partner for um, offsets. But what we've done is take taken a measured approach. We actually have all stakeholders that could be on any end of the spectrum. We understand that and we don't want to alienate anyone on any end of the spectrum. So we could have a client group that is telling us, you guys have to move faster, um, you know, move forward faster. And we could have other stakeholders saying, hey, but hold on a second. Like we, we don't want you to divest, uh, fossil fuels. And so we don't listen to them directly to tell us what to do, but we listen collectively to say, how can we move forward faster and how can we bring others along? Um, and so because our approach has been measured and because it's, it, we have taken the, we've listened to all of our stakeholders, 
It's probably a little bit slower, but it doesn't land us in a spot where we then have to pull back. So making a decision to go with Climate Vault is because we had done the work behind the scenes. We had studied a long time in terms of trying to figure out the right partnership. And so when we make the partnership, we can um, actually sustain that partnership. So I think that's probably the difference for Northern Trust. And we, we, we've talked about the way companies are responding and the pressures and incentives for companies to respond. But, you know, there's a role for individuals to play here as well. And, and Margaret, you're, you're the activist on the panel. You're the, a true blue activist. Um, you are a clinical psychologist by training, but you've had sort of a, a mid-career um, uh, sort of uh, conversion moment. Um, I'd love to hear about that. And you, and you had some big news this week coming in um, uh, Climate Week. Um, for those of you guys who don't know, um, you know, Margaret, um, runs the Climate Emergency Fund, um, which is a funder of uh, direct activism um, and, and has done some really interesting work. And, and you got funding this week from who? Adam McKay announced a $4 million pledge um, to Climate Emergency Fund. Yeah, that, that, is, the, that is our largest donation. Um, and it's also the largest donation by far that Adam has ever given. You can see, uh, if you've seen his film, Don't Look Up, why <laughs> he would uh, resonate with the approach of the climate activists who we support, uh, who you might have seen recently uh, disrupting the Tour de France or the French Open or the British Grand Prix or uh, gluing themselves to the uh, frames of paintings in uh, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany. So, so why, why, why would we support such a thing, right? Um, and the reason is, uh, and just stepping back a moment to my own background as a clinical psychologist and my kind of framework of analysis here, is because we are in a state of collective uh, mass delusion of normalcy, right? That that um, we're you know the house is on fire, but we're all just kind of sitting around uh, continuing whatever activity we've been doing, right? This is not true of every individual, but this is true of our kind of collective and systemic approach, and. Um, and the activists are intervening in that. Uh, so to, to just put a little bit of psychological background on this, humans evaluate risk socially, not rationally, right? So if there was a fire alarm that we started to hear right now, we'd be like, we'd look around, right? Are people, are people scared or are they just like ignoring it? Like, I mean, like is the leadership, what are they indicating? What is the risk level here? Right, and, and depending on what other people are doing, we will be like, oh my gosh, get out of here, right? Or, or, and I mean, and this has been shown in a lab. If people are not responding, the room will fill up with smoke and be, we will just be sitting there, mm -hmm. okay? And that is what is happening on climate. The room is full of smoke, the fire alarm is going off, but we're still in this kind of stupor. So we need these activists to shake us and shake us awake. And that is, is what they're doing. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Well, that's right. 
And in addition to the, the monetary donation from uh, Adam McKay, you also had like an in-kind donation from Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> who is tweeting out your work. So what are you going to spend the money on? Well, so, so we, have a, we have a truly unique funding model, and we are unique in the social, in the philanthropic uh, ecosystem. And I think that it's really actually a great match with Fast Company. Um, one way to think of us is it, it, like using the kind of venture philanthropy model, meaning the groups we fund are new, right? There's, they're popping up all of the time. These, these efforts. I mean, for example, we funded hunger strikers outside of the White House, uh, protesters, uh, disruptive protesters at the coal plant that enriches Joe Manchin, as well as at his boat and his Maserati, right? Like, these, so these efforts, they're organic. The activists get in touch with us. We want to do this. Can you give us, and the money, it's it, like, the, the grants are so small compared to what you would be used to with like a big green NGO, you know, $20,000, $50,000. And we can have this outsized impact because we're utilizing volunteers who are willing to take these, um, you, take these, you know, risks, put themselves on the line in this way that I think is truly heroic. I'm curious, so, so you know, Greg, um, listening to Margaret speak, when she was talking about sort of a sense of um, collectively not a, dealing with the problem, that sounds a little bit like what you experienced when you were in Maryland. Is that, yeah. is, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, here, here I was, I was on a, a Smith Island, and I, you know, I knew the high tide was coming up and going to wash out the road. So, I, you know, I was, there's no cars on Smith Island, so I was pedaling this little kid's bike with a rusted chain. And a guy leans out of his door and says, you better hurry up, climate change is coming. You know, and, it, and, it, and here's, a, here's a guy who's actually dealing with the effects of it, but at the same time, the, 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 the words that are used, the, the, the terminology seems to have some, some real confrontation, especially in that area. You know, I, I was on Tangier and there was the, the mayor uh, who Trump famously called to tell him that he wasn't gonna lose his island. You know, I was working with him and he was with uh, me and two other scientists, and we went to the northern part of the island. And he, you know, won't say climate change, he won't say sea level rise. And we get to the northern part of the island where a lot of it's washing away, and the scientists were like, Sue, can you describe what's happening here? And he gives this really long explanation about all the different ways the tides are affecting the sand and moving things around. And the scientist looks at me and goes, he just perfectly described sea level rise, like to a T, but he's not gonna use the words. So there's this, there's this way that, We've, we've gotten jammed up with, with the kind of terms that we use, the politicization of it. And like you're saying, we, we have a bunch of people who are dealing with the effects of it, but in their mind, it's erosion, 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 and not that, you know, they're not screaming that there's a fire. So if I, if I may, I just I wanted to apply what I'm saying to what business might possibly do, because I hear a lot about net zero. I've been hearing about net zero all week and on this panel and, you know, companies and countries and whatever. And that, I, that has a role. But I just also encourage companies to think about their role in the broader social political system um, and not just kind of clean up their own uh, emissions, but like 
can you, so, so yeah, actually a grantee of ours, Climate Emergency Unit laid out four things that demonstrate when an institution is in emergency mode. They tell the truth about the scale of the crisis. They set up new institutions to get the job done. Voluntary measures become mandatory measures and they spend what it takes to get to, to win. And I think a perfect example of a company embodying this spirit recently is Patagonia. Mm-hmm. It's like the, what, what they did is uh, incredible, unprecedented, just like the crisis. So it's totally reasonable. Yeah. So now, Andrew, part of the philosophy of Climate Vault, right, is to give teeth to net zero pledges. And there's been a lot said about, you know, some of some of the corporate activity thus far has been nebulous or maybe even greenwashing. Um, you guys are here to try to bring shape to that market and make it real. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so our, our, our thing is really simple, which is tons, tons, tons. You know, we end conversations with let's go get more tons. <laughs> so we've got to, you know, help organizations, help individuals uh, get to net zero in a verifiable, transparent way that's over the long term and not doing it with ways that may or may not have any impact. I mean, that's another, you know, our North Star is does the planet care? There are a lot of things that we can do. We can all go home and compost our coffee grounds. The reality is, does the planet care, right? Everyone here could stop composting tomorrow and forever if we took one coal plant offline. It's that easy. Like, think of all the activity we all do around composting, which is a wonderful thing. I do it too. It's great. However, <laughs> we got to go after the big targets and do it in a cost-effective way that's durable over the long term. And I think organizations like Northern Trust that have taken the time to think about things methodically and not fallen into which way the wind is blowing on a particular day and said, we got to do this in a durable, sustainable way, like Patagonia and what Yvonne Chouinard did, what Genpac's talking about. It's across our four you know, constituencies, the communities, customers, shareholders, et cetera. Like, that's how we got to think about this in a systemic, durable, long-term way. And are you confident that, that enough people will adopt your solution or solutions like it in time to have that effect? I don't know. We're a two-year-old you know, startup, so I'm not confident in a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it would, is an emergency. Well, I would say what's been really fun is that uh, we've had a lot of conversations with, let's say, the cloud-scale companies in California and Seattle. Um, and when you look at what some of those companies, you know, social networking companies, one of the large uh, consultancies, I'm not going to name names, but you can go look them up, big payments company, uh, came out with an idea of amongst the club of them. Uh, it's very similar to the Climate Vault approach. They're not quite all the way there in that they're not using the compliance markets so that they're still doing things that you know, are not going to be verifiable or trusted, but they can take that brand risk. Um, let them take that. Uh, but I hopefully, you know, ultimately we would be successful if we had 20 other organizations with an identical model out in the marketplace. I'm curious, so Tiger, uh, we were talking before, uh, you're based in London most of the time, um, you know, with what's happening in Europe around energy, um, what's happening geopolitically with Russia and Iran. Um, you know, you were wondering whether or not this might actually be a moment when change was finally possible. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, no, so one of the, you know, I think, Margaret, your point on psychology of risk being social, that's one way humans think. The other thing that I 
completely believe in is the way humans have evolved is to understand risk in the moment so much better and easier than risk that is far away on time, I don't understand it that much, and far away from me. So space and time distance makes risk, who cares? And, and I, think, I think the photographs are, no, it's not that far away in time and it's not that far away in space, that's number one. Number two, if you can make it visible to me with data that is always repeatable, reliable, verifiable, and doesn't matter who verifies it, it's the same data, that actually I can say, I did this and it had this impact, then the chances are I'm gonna get motivated. So part of the, part of the attraction for us in, in, in getting into this partnership with a very innovative idea is the fact that it's a marketplace. First of all, markets, I love the fact that it's one of the biggest inventions, I never thought of that, um, of humans. Markets ultimately work. Bringing demand to, and supply together works. It requires a little bit of frictionless conversation between, ma between the participants, and it requires an ease and almost a joy of working in the market that makes it easy to participate. It requires transparency and verifiability, which all comes down to data and technology. That's it. Um, and then Andrew can do his magic. But, but, but I, I fundamentally believe that this could be a very, very interesting journey. I, I agree with you, Andrew, that you know, it requires 10 such, 20 such things to crop up. After all, markets also have similar markets in different geographies, different ecosystems. So that's what really attracted us. Um, and the API that Andrew was talking about is, an, is a way to make that so easy for people that actually you can go and tell a large enterprise, to Margaret's point on big impact, to make a big move that they can actually say, it's verified, I can show it, and I can actually thump the table, and anyone who wants to come and check, I can actually then thump the table and say, I got 20% of my way there, and I'm now going to work on the next 20%. Yeah, you were talking, Andrew, about like imagine a world where everybody could offset their next delivery from Amazon or from Instacart, you know, automatically, which you know is sort of an interesting idea. Um, Kimberly, I know you've been thinking as well about like imagine a world where employees could have offsets as um, an employee benefit. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So the way we think about this is again, we we always have to have our full stakeholder community view, right? Like so, clients want us to do certain things. Investors want us to do certain things. Regulators want us to do certain things. But our employees want us to do things as well, right? So they want to know that we are in um, the fight for, uh, you know, helping to sustain our environment long term. And so one of the ways we thought we could do this is if we, you know, partnership with Climate Vault means that we would be taking care of the company's carbon emissions, the company's, um, even the ecosystem that we use with vendors, et cetera, to offset emissions via Climate Vault. But going one step further would be every person uses X, you know, emits X amount of tons um, per year. What if we started the way to say, we will offset, you know, the first ton for every employee and then make this a benefit option for employees ultimately where they can then start to think about, you know, just like you choose your insurance providers, we could choose Climate Vault to be, you know, one of those other part of our total reward system that allows our employees to do that. And us bringing 
you know, Andrew um, talked a lot about scale. Like, so us bringing this to the employees so they don't have to try to figure out who should I go with? Where's the credible source to be able to do this? How will I know that it's actually happening? Well, if we can do it, you know, from a corporate perspective, we can then extend that to our employees. So we have more work to do to build that into our program, but that is the way that we're thinking about it. Yeah, and, and Tiger, again, as a CEO, there are a lot of pressures on CEOs today, right? There are pressures from stakeholders, there are uh, pressures from investors, pressures from employees. Um, at the same time, there are some people who are complacent. I think we've, that's been a theme of this panel. Um, what gets the, the senior data scientists and the senior engineers that you're working with really excited about working on this project? And then how do you sort of bring your energy for climate to, to everybody within your organization, to customers, to other stakeholders as well? I don't think it takes much to get um, you know, engineers and data scientists and so on to get, to get them excited about working on something like this. You know, we have, for example, sustainable supply chains that you know, we work with some of our clients on. Those projects are the most in demand mm -hmm. by you know, talent who actually can go to many other places. We, we have a relationship with large manufacturing companies that have you know, big turbines and equipment that are trying to find a way to measure uh, carbon footprint. First of all, measure it. It's actually not even measured properly. And then how do I find a way to run it more efficiently? For example, how do I know that the turbine is functioning, but actually it's not functioning as efficiently, so therefore its carbon footprint is worse than it could be? And one day it's going to fail and then we'll repair it. Instead of that, if I can monitor the equipment, which we do, and then actually help that equipment not go into repair and actually reduce carbon footprint. Those projects are in great demand. I expect the projects that we work on with Climate Wall to be the kind of projects that would be in great demand because then they can go home and explain to their family what they do for a living. Our business is not easy to explain to anyone. Oh, Genpack, <laughs> business processes. <laughs> I reduce carbon footprint for you know, company A and B or for this set of employees. I think that's a great way. So, we, I mean, you can see that we are incredibly excited. Yeah, we're, we're coming down to, to um, our last couple of minutes. And, you know, Andrew, one thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm, I'm aware that um, you become a major customer for sort of new and innovative technologies. Can you, can you talk about that? And what are some of the things that you're seeing out there that you're really excited about uh, investing in, not as an investor, but as a customer? Yeah, so you're talking about carbon removal, carbon sequestration. Um, there's a whole wide range of different different approaches. You know, there's a lot of industry hype around like direct air capture and carbon removal. Um, and you've probably seen the pictures of some of these giant facilities in Greenland and Iceland, and it looks really cool. Um, we're probably a ways off before that starts to scale. Um, there are some other things like uh, you know, wooden buildings uh, as one approach that's more sustainable than, say, concrete, which is an enormous um, carbon sink. Um, I think we've got more work to do as an industry and as kind of more broadly a society thinking through the choices. I don't think we've got the perfect answer yet. We're in the just early stages of going through RFPs and issuing the first amount of funds. But I think there's just more broadly, there's more work to be done thinking about the choices that we make and everything from building materials to how we how we get around in terms of transportation, our supply chains. There's a lot to be done, and I don't think we've got the answers just yet. 
That's not the answer you want, but it's kind of where we are. No, but it's, I mean, it's clarifying, right? Um, so Margaret, you know, hearing that and knowing that, um, you know, you believe this is a, a true emergency and, and that the activists that you fund believe that as well, you know, what's your message to business leaders on this panel and business leaders in the audience about um, how much time do we have and what do we need to do, you know, right now, today? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I can tell you... Uh, what's been keeping me up at night for the past several years and, you know, is just in general crop failure, right? And the, the, the fact of crop loss caused by drought and extreme weather causing, you know, cascading, uh, destabilizing events. Um, it's already happening. It's happening so fast. I mean, a third of Pakistan is underwater and the crops are just absolutely devastated. And when you think about then, like, geopolitical destabilization, I mean... I, so I, I think I think business leaders like all of us need to really wake up and face reality that this is like no one is handling this. I mean, people with a lot of people are helping. We have gone. There's a lot of, let's say, green shoots, but we're just we're not on the right track. We're not at the right scale. We're not really close. Um, so to think not again, not just what can we do ourselves in our small corner, but what can we do to really shift into a different level of functioning like we saw in this country during the home front mobilization during World War II when we transformed our economy from a civilian economy to a war economy in years, not decades, with measures like, you know, banning the sale of new consumer automobiles so that all of that industrial capacity could be dedicated for war material. So, I, I mean, we've done this before, but we didn't do it one business, one individual at a, at a time. We did it through a collective effort. Yeah, Tiger, I think you were saying earlier, like, could we get to a place where everyone just decided not to drive on Saturdays and Sundays, right? Yeah, no, so I think, I think Margaret, your point on, you know, the fact that in April of 2020, all of a sudden, carbon footprint in the world dropped. Mm -hmm. Not because people said, oh, it's so good to do it, it's because there was no choice, <laughs> right? And no one sat down at the table and said, let's negotiate a treaty. No, there was no treaty. <laughs> it's, you're not getting out of home, buddy. You're not driving a car. <laughs> I, I actually wish, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be serious when I say this. I actually wish there was a mandate that basically says on Saturdays and Sundays, no one drives. That's it. And I don't know how it's going to be done. I guess the United Nations is meeting here, so it could be done. <laughs> Constraints when it fall on you. Humans are so innovative. But if you don't have good constraints, I think, Andrew, you were saying, or... And fair constraints. And fair constraints, people find a way around, because we are innovative. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, so, Greg, we started with you. Let's end with you. I'm curious, um, you know, you embarked on this project, probably being interested in climate, but not yet someone who is like fully versed in climate. Um, you've met so many people, some of whom are, are grappling with these issues, some of whom are clear-eyed, and maybe some of whom are not. You know, what have you learned about human nature by virtue of your documentary work, and does that make you optimistic or not optimistic about where we are right now? I mean, I, I would I would echo what what Tiger and Margaret are saying is that there, there's you know when people are forced into the situation, when the situation is happening to them, they will make moves and they will try to adapt in time. And the unfortunate part of it is that you have to bring that problem to their doorstep in order for them to act. And it's kind of like what Tiger said, is like, 
this kind of 100 years out, 50 years out, that doesn't make people jump. But like what we're saying here is the house is on fire, so now's the time. Great. Um, Tiger, Tiger Garajan, uh, Kimberly Evans, Andrew Daly, Margaret Klein-Salman, and Greg Hahn, thank you so much for, for this terrific panel. <laughs>